Ecclesiastes chapter 10, if you want to find your place there, that's where we will be in just a moment, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And uh, we'll get through a few more verses there towards the end of the chapter. All right, you find your place, Ecclesiastes 10, stand with me if you would. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 12, Solomon says, the words of a wise man's mouth are, and then he uses this word, gracious. And what a great word that would describe the words of a man. But the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is mischievous madness. A fool also is full of words. A man cannot tell what shall be and what shall be after him. Who can tell him? Let's pray tonight. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a good day. Lord, thank you for this place and uh, a few moments that we could share tonight. I pray that you'd speak to us and help us with uh, this specific area of our words in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In Matthew chapter 12, the first part of the chapter, uh, we find the story of a man, and this man had a lot of troubles in his life. The Bible says that he was blind, could not see, the world was dark to him. Can can you imagine the difficulty uh, that that would be? completely blind, but that wasn't all. It says he was also dumb. That does not mean he lacked intelligence. He could speak. So he's blind, he's dumb, and then as if like just an addendum to all of that, the Bible says, and he was possessed of a devil. And you think you have bad days, right? I I, I can't even begin to imagine the condition of this man and the type of life that he lived. And the Bible tells us in Matthew 12 that this man was brought to Jesus. Now, we're not told who brought him to Jesus. No one says that. I don't think the people that brought him to Jesus had good motives, though. I I believe, as as I read the text and I read the Scripture and this portion of Scripture, that he was brought to Jesus by the Pharisees. And I personally think it was a test. And the test went this way. If Jesus couldn't heal this man, because this was an extreme case, this guy's blind, he's dumb, and he's possessed of a devil. And so if Jesus couldn't heal him, then he discredited himself. So he wasn't the Messiah. And that's all the Pharisees wanted to do was discredit him. They didn't care about this guy. They cared about discrediting Jesus. So they bring him to him. But if Jesus did heal the man, then they had this ready answer to accuse him of. And we read this answer in verse 24, and this was their answer. So these guys have gotten together, and they have this, this, this test they're going to put before Jesus. And they say, if he, if he can't heal the guy, look, we can discredit him before all these people. If he does, then we'll say this. Ready? This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. He himself is from Satan's realm. And so this is a gotcha moment for the Pharisees. They think we're going to get him on this one. Like either he can't do it or if he does, then we have this perfect rate made ready response. In verse 22 of Matthew 12, nothing is said about the drama of the moment other than speaking of Jesus and the man. And we read these four words and he healed him. Thinking of Jesus, like this is not a problem for the Lord. And the Bible just says he healed them. And so that sets up this altercation between the Pharisees and Jesus. And so the man is healed, and the Pharisees look at each other, and they think, okay, he did it, now let's use our line. This line that we've rehearsed, this gotcha moment, and so with great dignity and with pomp, they declare to all gathered present, and you can just hear 
that the announcement to the crowd, this fellow, not speaking at Jesus, they're speaking at the crowd, doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Therefore, he is a bad man. Okay, there was a problem. I just sounded like Bill Rice just now. I just caught myself. I was like, whoa, who was that guy? There was a problem for the Pharisees, though. They were at an extreme disadvantage, and they didn't even know it. Because verse 25 says this, And Jesus knew their thoughts. It takes all the fun out of it. Playing poker with Jesus would be really boring and get discouraging fast. And so, after explaining to them how ridiculous their logic was, after making the Pharisees look foolish, Jesus uses the moment to teach them why their opposition to him was so self-destructive. And so here they go, and, and, and boy, the tables get turned really fast on them. And he proceeds into this teaching about the importance of our words. And, and, and that's where he goes with it. So here's this man, he's blind, he's dumb, he's deaf, or not deaf, he's blind, he's dumb, and he's possessed of a devil. Jesus heals him, sets up this altercation. Pharisees use their one-liner. Jesus says, you guys are really foolish. The things you're thinking, your motives, all that you're doing here, you're leading to your own self-destruction. And the main thing that's a problem here are your words. And so I have these verses on the screen. If you want to turn to Matthew 12, 33, you can do that. This is what Jesus says. Now here's his teaching. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by its what? Its fruit. Like, like this is an agricultural society. We aren't so much, but we still understand this. Like, this is, this is basic bottom shelf uh, knowledge and, and comprehension. Verse 34. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? Okay. A a bad tree makes bad fruit. A good tree makes good fruit. And he says, and you're evil, and good things aren't going to... You you think you're doing good here. You think trying to discredit me. You think dragging this man in front of me, you're you're accomplishing something good. You're not. You, You can't even speak anything good. Why? Because you're evil. Okay, so he says, this principle, verse 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Verse 35, a good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. Verse 36, but I say unto you. Now, there is this warning that he's giving these men, but he's also giving it to all gathered there. And this wisdom is passed down to us today. That every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Okay, let me give an illustration real quick, and I want to come back to this. An acid test is a process used to determine the value of something. And and acid tests are, are kind of an old way of testing gold. You can still do that today. You can order them on Amazon, an acid testing kit comes in this, you get this little black flat rock and these four vials and it'll tell you the, if, it, if it's not real gold or it'll tell you the, the quality of the gold. And I went as far as to watch a few YouTube videos on that process this afternoon. Gold is considered a noble metal. 
meaning it is resistant to corrosion. And it's usually found in, in, of course, in in nature in its raw form. It's resistant to it. It's it's why it's a noble metal. And so what you would do to test gold is you just, you take the gold piece, whatever it is, if if you had a ring or something, and you would rub it on the stone. And then on the stone, not on the the object, but on the stone, where where it left some shavings of that, that, that metal, once it's, once it's ground off on that stone, you would begin to pour the acid on it. And so if the, acid, if, the, if the acid wears away the metal real quick, then it's not real gold. But if the gold remains, then you know, oh, okay, now that's probably real gold. Now, there are more sophisticated ways of testing gold today, but that's a, that's a method that's been used for a very long time. And, and the expression or, of acid test became popular in, eight, in the 1840s around the California gold rush because that was how they tested the gold. And so this was written in a paper from that era in November of 1845. And this was really the first time that it was used in this context. And this newspaper said, 24 years of service demonstrates, and speaking of this man, his ability to stand the acid test as Gibson soap polish has done for over 30 years. What are they saying? This company and this man who leads this company has good character. And over a long period of time, they have withstood the acid test. They've been tested and and they come out and they are a profitable company. They're a a company of high character and high performance. God has his own acid test of figuring out what's inside our heart. So it's not a black stone. And it's not little vials of chemical. Jesus listened to the words of the Pharisees and he came to this conclusion. No gold there. But it looked good. It sparkled, had the robes, dotted all the you know, I's and, and crossed the T's. And man, it looked really religious. But he said, I tested you. And how did he test him? He didn't rub them on a black rock. He listened to their words and he said, inside of you is no gold. There is no treasure worth having. There was another man in the Old Testament to whom Jesus listened to his words. And he liked his words. And Jesus said, that guy passes the test. And his name was Job. And Satan said, then, then test him real hard, Jesus. Test him hard. And so God did. And you know the story of Job. It was a horrible testing. I mean, like his kids died. Everything taken from him. His wife turns on him. The nitric acid was applied to his life. And Job's response to all of this, through this process, was this. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So I'm going to go through this test. And these these, these vials of acid, they're going to be poured out of me. And God tried his heart. Just like he tried the heart of the Pharisees and he listened to his words. And God said, there's some treasure there. There's some gold there that withstands the test. And he listened to the Pharisees and said, there's no treasure here. There's no gold here. Jesus said in verse 35, again of Matthew 12, the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. God isn't the only one that can judge our hearts. And the treasure of our hearts, or the lack thereof. See, you can, I, I can judge the treasure or the lack of treasure in a man's heart. How? Well, just listen to his words. Listen to what he says. Listen to what he communicates. Listen to the tone. 
Listen to what he writes. Listen, listen to what he communicates with his face. A man or woman can say they are Christian. They can say conservative things. They can read Bible verses. They can be very convincing with your argument. The Pharisees used this tactic. They used it to nail Jesus to the cross and destroy their nation. And politicians use it. And businessmen and news outlets and influences today, they use the same tactic. They identify with conservative values. They sound very convincing. Like maybe they have your best interests in mind. But if you really want to know what's in their heart, listen to their words. Not what you want them to say. Not what you want to see. But what they're actually saying. What they're actually communicating. Listen to your own words. It can be really sobering to listen to yourself. I, I, I have said things before, and then Elizabeth gives me the look. And I'm not going to define the look, because some of you guys know the look. And I was like, what did I say? She says, not what you said. It's what? It's how you said it. It's what you're communicating. It's the words of your mind. It's the words of your lips. It's the words that we type and write. Those are the things that determine who we really are. And Jesus says this, for by thy words thou shalt be justified. Means this, rendered righteous. And by thy words thou shalt be condemned. It means rendered guilty. We are not judged by our intentions here. He is saying you are judged by what you say. And you're judged by how you say it. The things you're communicating with your life, you will be judged for. And our words communicate the wisdom or the folly that is inside our heart. And Solomon said there are wise words. And there are foolish words. And they're not just words. Those words betray what is inside the heart of an individual. And so look at the text once more with me in verse 12. He says, the words of a wise man's mouth are what? They're gracious. But the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. Your words, a fool's words, are always hurting himself. They're self-destructive. They swallow up himself. There are some, and maybe you and I could find ourselves in this place, and maybe we feel this way tonight. We look at our life from a, from a distance maybe and have a reflective moment, and we think, maybe even with self-pity, I wonder why I don't have more friends. I wonder why more people don't like me. It must be an unfriendly church. It's a toxic work environment. It's a horrible nation. I don't know why I don't get promoted at work. The boss just keeps overlooking me. And they're so unfair and unethical in their practices. No one asks me to be a deacon or trustee or, or whatever, you know, promotion at, 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 the, at the church. They, all they ask me to do is work in the nursery. <laughs> just joking. No one's kind to me. Everybody's just mean to me and scowls at me. People keep their distance. I walk up and everybody walks away. Okay. I, I'm not saying there might be some real problems there, and there could be. But maybe the problem isn't work or church or family or others. It could be your own lips that are swallowing up yourself, the lips of a fool. 
we can't take back the words that we say. And so what do we often do instead? Well, we justify them. So we're just going to blame it on other people. Well, no, how matter, no matter how much we justify, it doesn't matter. The Bible says your words are hurting you. They're swallowing you up. Proverbs 18, 6 and 7 says, A, lips, a fool's lips enter into contention. He's picking a fight, always contentious. And no one wants to be around that. His mouth calleth for strokes. Now, there's people mistreat you sometimes, maybe because your mouth invites it. Verse 7, a fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Foolish words, foolish tones, foolish ways of communicating with our children, and they cop a bad attitude with us, and we look at them and say, well, you're just disrespectful. And yet you yourself are so condescending towards them. Sometimes it's not the kid's problem. Sometimes it's our problem as parents. And sometimes it can be the kid's problem. But foolish words will always hurt you. And God himself says that he will hurt us because of our words. I'm not going to have you turn there, but listen carefully. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 6. And, and this was the context of going to the house of God and communicating with the Lord. And Solomon says, Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel it was an heir. You can't take back those words. You said it. Oh, I didn't really mean it. You said it. He says, wherefore, now listen to the language here. Should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? Has someone ever said something around you or to you and it upsets you? And they're just angry at you? Can you imagine God being angry at your voice? Like you speak and makes God mad. That's what Solomon's saying here. Literally, God is angry at the words you said. And then what's the consequence here? Well, he destroys the work of your hands. His anger isn't empty. It's not just vanity. Literally, we suffer and we are less because of the words sometimes that we say. Foolish words aren't just self-destructive. They're evil. Look at verse 13. The Bible says the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is mischievous madness. Mischievous literally means evil or wicked. Madness means fury or rage. Paul Tripp wrote a book entitled War of Words, and in it he writes this. Listen to the talk that goes on in your home. How much of it is, imp is impatient and unkind. How often are words spoken out of selfishness and personal desire? How easily do outbursts of anger occur? How often do we bring up past wrongs? How do we fail to communicate hope? How do we fail to protect? How often do our words carry threats that we have had it? We're about to quit. He makes this challenge to the reader. Stop and listen. And you will see how much we need to hold our talk to the standard of love. And how often the truth we profess to speak has been distorted by our sin. Your foolish words destroy us. God himself looks at that and says, this is not okay. And he destroys, the Bible says, the work of our hands. And foolish words, they have no end. Look at verse 14. A fool also is full of words. A man cannot tell what shall be and what shall be after him. Who can tell him? 
Fools are full of words. They just chatter on and on. You ever said something foolish before? And then what do we typically do next? We keep talking. (laughs) And we say more foolish words to cover up our foolish words. And it gets bad fast. I've never experienced that personally, but I've seen other people do it, right? I don't know how many times Mrs. Durrell has told me, like, Daniel, put the shovel down. Yeah, just put it down. You know, we're just, okay, we're just going to make this worse. We, we do this. Plato said, wise men speak because they have something to say. And fools, because they have to say something. Fools are really opinionated. He says, a man cannot tell what shall be and what shall be after him. He says, who can tell him? (laughs) They aren't open open to dissenting opinion. Nope, they've already got everything figured out, and they know exactly what's right and what's wrong. They're convinced they're right, and they aren't going to listen to you. When you're talking, they're not listening. But in the process, a fool misses out on important information that could protect them or help them. And a fool's words come back to haunt them. Look at verse 20. Same text. Solomon says, curse not the king. This would be a person in authority. He says, no, not in thy thought. <laughs> like when that thought enters your brain, that's where it dies. Like before it gets there, stop it. And curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. Those who are richer than you. of whom you might be envious and have something negative to say about because they have a better life than you. And it may not just be richer in money. It could be richer in love or or, or relationships or whatever. They've just got a better life and you think they're better than you. Some curse them. Why? For a bird of the air shall carry the voice and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. We, We talk bad about someone and we think in that moment, the, this, is, this is a cone of silence. And no one else is going to hear this repeated. And Solomon says, yep, and you are a fool. Because a little bird will hear it, and it's going to be repeated. Foolish criticisms, they come back to haunt us. So easy to criticize others that have a better life than us. Those that are in authority. But sooner or later, what you said, it will be repeated, and it will hurt you. And it's going to swallow you up. It's going to make your life worse. It's going to make your work environment worse. It's going to make your home life worse. It's going to make everything at church worse. It's going to make your family worse. This could not be more true than in the digital space today. You text something. I have an iPhone. All I've got to do is go two sides and it's screenshotted. That stuff never goes away. And you think that that person's going to hold your confidence. And no one does. Once the words leave our mouths, once they leave our fingertips, we lose control over where they go. You say, well, what's my recourse? Great question. (laughs) Don't say them. (laughs) Don't type them. Don't communicate that way. Wipe the scowl off your face. Instead, try a different approach. Solomon says a lot of words about foolish words. And he says, how about this instead? And he he just uses this short little phrase. Verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth. They're gracious. In the Hebrew, it's chen. It sounds like chain. It means favorable, kind, benevolent, merciful. Yeah, they deserve a slap. Yeah, they deserve for you to be unkind. 
but you're merciful, disposed to forgive offenses and impart unmerited blessing. The book of Nehemiah, if you were to take the Bible and put it in chronological order in the way it happened, you were to start with Genesis and you get to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah would be the very last book of the Old Testament. And so chronologically, you've got Genesis, and then you've got Nehemiah, and after the book of Nehemiah, there's a period of silence where God doesn't speak. And then we get right into the Gospels, and we begin the life of Jesus Christ. And so Nehemiah, in chapter 9, towards the very end of the last book of the Bible, he's recounting how the Jewish people responded to God after all the goodness he had done for them. And he says in chapter 9, verse 16, they and our fathers, and he's telling the Lord this, they dealt proudly, hardened their necks. They hearkened not to thy commandments. They didn't listen to you. They didn't do what you said. They refused to obey. They weren't mindful of thy wonders. And that phrase right there was perhaps the biggest offense of all. It's a lack of gratitude. Not mindful. Not, 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 not aware of your wonders, Lord. And he says this, that thou didst among them. Instead, what did they do? They just hardened their necks. Didn't want to think about his goodness. That's how they treated God. What was God's response to all that? Well, the second part of verse 17, he says, But thou art a God ready to pardon. Gracious. There's that word. Merciful. Slow to anger and of great kindness and forsookest them not. Okay, these are some of the very last words of the Old Testament. Then there's silence. And then a new beginning. And we read about a baby being born who turned out to be the Messiah, who would turn the world upside down. And as he begins his ministry, and he's speaking, and he's teaching, and he's ministering to people, people are listening to the words he said in contrast to the other religious leaders of the day. They're comparing what they hear at the synagogue and at the temple. And they're listening to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they're listening to the Roman dictators of the day. And then Jesus shows up and they listen to his words. And they say this. They, this is the adjective they use to describe how he spoke. And Luke chapter 4 records this. And he says, and all bore him witness and wondered. Can they, Old Testament, they failed to wonder. But now they listen to Jesus' words and they wondered at the gracious words which proceeded from his mouth. Just listening to him going, wow. God's words were gracious in the Old Testament. His words were gracious in the New Testament. Even when people were mean to him. Even when they disobeyed him. When they disappointed him. When they frustrated him. His words and his responses to conflict were gracious. And gracious words should be the target for every child of God's communication. People should walk into Eastland Baptist Church, listen to how we talk to each other, listen to the chatter that goes on in the foyer, in this auditorium, listen to our young people speak to one another. They should listen to children interact with parents. They should, they should listen to the grandparents and the grand, grandchildren in this place. They should listen to the friends. And they should walk out of this church and say, I don't know if that church is for me or not, but that church is full of gracious people. Gracious communication. That's what should define us. And it's what needs to define us. We should be making Christ really attractive 
in our work environments by the words we speak. We should be making them really attractive and beautiful by our interactions with our neighbors and how we interact with our families and how my children or your children see you. They should see the graciousness of Christ through our words. So how do we get there? Okay, very quickly. I think number one, and I think it's obvious from the sermon tonight, we have to deal with our heart. Jesus says it's a source. A wise speech comes from a wise heart, and that comes from the gift of God who lives inside of us, who, who makes a difference inside of us, being connected to the vine of Christ. Matthew 12, again, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if our words aren't gracious, then there's a heart problem. If we're not communicating grace with our face, there's a heart problem. If we're speaking evil of those in authority or have a better life than a perceived life that we perceive as better than us, there's a heart problem within us. Wise speech requires a heart that's connected and overflowing with the love of God. I think second, we need to learn to choose our words and stop blurting out whatever comes to mind, like so many in our culture do today. Just because you think it doesn't make it good. Proverbs 16, 23 says, The heart of the wise teacheth his mouth. There is a disconnect sometimes from here to here. And a fool just lets whatever comes to mind come out. Types it, writes it, says it. And the the Bible says, A wise man's heart studieth and teacheth his mouth what to say. This is is an ongoing discipleship process for all of us. To learn to teach our mouths what to say and add learning says to our lips. A wise man has learned to put a pause between what he thinks and what he says, and it's not always easy. And so David in Psalms 141 said, Lord, set a watch before my mouth. Like, Lord, sometimes I struggle with the pause, so would you help me with the pause? And that's a great prayer request. God, help me with my speech. Help me with the pause. Ecclesiastes 5.2, again, Solomon says, Be not rash with thy mouth. And let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. And he says, therefore, let thy words be few. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool utters all his mind, but a wise man keeps it until afterwards. See, those with strong and solid and genuine hearts have the least noisy mouths. And you think about politicians you think about work environment, you think about our, our country, you think about your, the people that you interact with, and those with noisy mouths often have the least solid hearts. Your communication should be filled with kindness and grace more than any other thing. Are there times for speaking harshly? Yeah, there are. Jesus did. But it was with purpose and it was with intent. And most of our harsh words are reactive, and they come from a sin-sick soul. And phrases that need to come from our mouths every single day need to be words like this, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? I love you. Thank you. It's not complicated. These are gracious words. I messed up. Shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have thought that. Shouldn't have, shouldn't, have, shouldn't have acted that way. I'm sorry. I love you. Forgive me. Thank you. This is a week and a holiday season that's approaching. We're going to have some more time together 
and with one another in our homes. Someone is going to snub you. Someone probably sitting close to you tonight. Maybe the guy speaking to you. I don't know. Could be a parent, could be a sibling, a cousin, a grandparent, a friend. Someone's going to say something harsh or unkind. And you're going to hear it directly, or a little bird is going to tweet it to you. You know what they said? And that person is going to deserve your unkindness. They're going to deserve to be slapped. They're going to be deserved for you to be mean to them. They will be deserved, deserving of being put down and spoken to harshly. But how would a wise person respond? This is what Solomon is suggesting. That instead of taking that approach, we would use gracious words. And that we would ask God to help us with our heart so that our words are gracious. Some point this week, I imagine, this month, expectations that you have of another person are going to go unmet. You're going to get frustrated at work. You'll have a moment where you're upset with your spouse. You're going to be frustrated with someone at church, maybe. And I'm going to ask you this, in your response, in this place, and in your home, and the places you go, would you be gracious and not reactive? Those of you who are social media users, in your posts and in your responses, would you use grace to the foolish words of others? This week is Thanksgiving. And so your words and your communication will reflect the gratitude that is present or absent in your heart. You can say you're thankful all you want. But what's going to come out when you're tested a little bit? God tested Job. He found some gold. Found some treasure. He tested the Pharisees. No treasure. Good doesn't come from a bad heart. What's he going to find when you're tested? And you have been. And you will be. See, Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech be always with grace. Is there any gold there? Solomon said, the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. What are your words communicating to the Lord and to those in your life? Let me ask you to stand if you would tonight.